Welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by the team of Resolve Asset Management, where evidence inspires confidence. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in the mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everyone in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo, and Jason Russell are principals of Resolve Asset Management. Due to industry regulations, they will not discuss any of Resolve's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by the principals are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gestalt University. My name is Rodrigo Gordillo, Managing Partner at Resolve Asset Management. In today's episode, we delve deep into the mind of a very special guest, Eric Falkenstein. While academics and practitioners are no longer surprised by the existence of the low volatility anomaly, many papers have been published in incredible journals describing the effect and several explanations have been proposed. But most of the explanations seek to preserve the traditional relationship between risk and return that serves as a fundamental basis of modern economics. Eric Falkenstein turns this concept on its head. Eric wrote his thesis on the low volatility effect long before it was acceptable to talk about in polite company. Despite the size of the effect and the depth and breadth of Eric's analysis, it violated the critical quote-unquote equilibrium theory of the day and was rejected by every journal. Eric learned some valuable lessons from this experience that listeners would do well to pay attention to. Resolve CIO Adam Butler took the opportunity to zero in on Eric's research into the alternative equilibrium model rooted in aversion to relative rather than absolute wealth. If investors are more concerned with relative status rather than absolute wealth, then the low volatility phenomenon is a legitimate risk factor. Eric's work covers far more than just volatility investing and risk models. This discussion branches into politics, social policy, and eventually into his new pet project, cryptocurrencies. This was an all around incredible conversation that listeners won't want to miss. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the Resolve podcast series. I am really excited to have Eric Falkenstein on the show today. Eric received his economics PhD from Northwestern in 1994 and wrote his dissertation on the low return to high volatility stocks. As such, Eric was one of the first academics to document the so-called low volatility anomaly, along with practitioners like Bob Hogan and Jim Hines. Earlier in his career, Eric built an enterprise risk system for trading operations at KeyCorp Bank and eventually went on to create the Risk Cal private firm default probability model at Moody's, which is still one of the most popular private firm default models in the world. Eric's been an equity portfolio manager and currently works on trading algorithms for Walleye Software. He's been published in several journals, including the Journal of Finance, the Journal of Fixed Income, Derivatives Quarterly, and others. He's also the author of two books. Finding Alpha, published in 2009, and The Missing Risk Premium in 2012. He blogs, albeit infrequently, at falconblog.blogspot.com, and you can sometimes find him on Twitter at egfalcon. Eric, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Hey, thanks, Adam. Good to be with you. Just to clarify, I stopped working at uh, Walleye about six years ago. I left there and uh, went to uh, Pine River for like three years, and Unfortunately, they hit a tough patch and I got there kind of like at the peak and they were like 5 billion and now, and then that all went away. We were a big multi-strat. So for the last basically uh, two years, I've been on my own and I'm creating a, a fund in the crypto space and uh, can't talk about it too much because it's qualified investors, but that's what I'm doing now. And I so just, just to clarify. Thanks for that. Yeah. You know, that'll teach me to, to grab your bio from Amazon where you probably haven't updated it in seven or eight years. So uh Thanks for clarifying. And <laughs> we should chat afterwards about what you're doing in crypto. I'm really trying to climb the learning curve in, in that space. And man, there's a lot of misinformation. It's fun for me because I, you know, I'm a big libertarian and I like the whole cypherpunk angle and, and then just the math of it and uh, the game theory is really fun, but uh, kind of orthogonal and it's, it's very high risk. So I've kind of like moved <laughs> over as most people do. You know, it's okay to be uh, for high vol if you know what you're doing. But as a general strategy, it doesn't make any sense. And that's the problem. Right. Yeah. So are you thinking about applying some sort of 
factor overlays or some sort of systematic strategies to try and put together portfolios of cryptocurrencies or, you know, what's the general thesis? No, they really don't have any factors that I've identified and it's not liquid enough to do that kind of trading. So it's more of a institutional ARB stuff you do, but unfortunately I can't talk about it much, but no, you can't do like a year ago, they had so many different coins. You might be able to find a factor, but basically, uh, you really only got like five that trade now and they're also correlated. They basically all are one factor models now. <laughs> yeah, no, fair point, fair point. Erica, I've been following your career for over 10 years. I stumbled on your blog, which led me to the missing risk premium, which led me to some of your papers that we're going to talk about today. So you've had a really interesting career trajectory in my observation. I'm just wondering... Are there any facets of your professional journey that you feel are, are not very well captured in your biography, but have been really uniquely formative for you? You know, many experiences don't really fit into a bio, but but are instrumental in shaping our thinking. You want to fill in any gaps there, if there are any? I guess I've always been kind of uh, wanting to do it on my own. So, so like when I wrote my dissertation, um, I didn't have a lot of buy-in from the finance guys. I had I had two game theorists and a, an econometrician. And if you want to get a good job, you need somebody from the finance department who's well-known to kind of push you. And I didn't make any friends there because my stuff didn't make sense to them. I've always kind of like been kind of unconventional. I mean, I was a TA for Hyman Minsky. And what I liked about Hyman Minsky was that he thought everyone was wrong. And to a certain extent, everybody is wrong all the time. The, the, the trick is you've got to find something better. Economists are way wrong. <laughs> and so I thought that was really cool. And, you know, I thought I could figure out business cycles. And But then, you know, like I published my papers. I don't know if you know, it's like I, like, I don't thank a lot of people. I kind of like doing them by myself. And I think looking back, I would have been a lot more successful if I would have tried to reach out and um, get more I don't know, compromise more with uh, big names because you can't do anything by yourself. So when I tried to create my own low vol fund back in in 96 or so, you know, one, one of the main reasons it failed was because I tried to do it myself. A good friend of mine, Pim Van Vliet over at Robico, he worked within the system. He had a guy at Robico and he was a young guy out of school and he partnered with somebody. But that's what you got to do. You got you to gotta go out and make friends and you can't be like the lone genius creating great things. You got to work with other people to create great things. And so I think looking back, I wish I would have done that more. Yeah, that's a good life lesson. Yeah, we've had Pim on for a webinar. He's been extremely generous with his time and is such an incredible, humble, incredibly talented individual. Hoping to have Pim on again for a podcast chat. I know he's been working on this paper. They've gone back and extended these uh, multi-asset factor premiums back a couple hundred years, which obviously was an enormous effort just in terms of data collection alone. And he's getting the paper or at least the research in ship shape so they can submit it to some, to some journals. I thought they did submit it like a couple months ago. Yeah, okay. Maybe they're doing revisions now, but uh, in chatting with him, he said he had a bunch of work to do and hope to get Yeah, he's got a really unique data set because most data starts like the Fama French data in 1926 in the U.S. And then he's got, well, the trick is he's got world data going back to 1800, but he doesn't have like kind of cross-sectional. So his factors are analogous to like equity factors. But when we think of a value factor, it's really a cross-sectional factor. And if all you have is the Japanese or Dutch stock market return, you got to kind of say, well, this is analogous to the value of the Dutch stock market, but not really. So... But anyway, it's a unique data set, so it's very interesting. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so I want to get right into what I consider to be sort of the meat of your life's work, right? And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought this excerpt from a paper that you wrote in 2010, the paper is called Risk and Return in General Theory and Evidence, and it presents an alternative model for risk and utility in financial markets. By the way, it's a very approachable paper. I highly recommend it to practitioners and academics alike. It takes a extremely orthogonal view to the traditional models of risk and how risk is compensated in markets. And I just want to read this excerpt because I think it really frames what we're going to talk about for the rest of the conversation. So I'm going to, this is an excerpt. People strictly prefer a certain outcome to an uncertain outcome with the same mean payoff. And so demand payoff premium to be indifferent. To the degree risk is not diversifiable, as in market risk, someone must hold it. 
and because it is disliked, those who do hold it must be compensated via a risk premium relative to risk-free securities. Yet it is striking that a first approximation to risk via volatility or beta against the market return generates no positive risk premium. This paper argues a more radical but much simpler solution. There is generally no empirical risk reward relation and that the seemingly obvious examples are exceptions to the general rule explainable as liquidity premiums and measurement error. I present a model that explains the null risk return result as an equilibrium where people internalize risky decisions by comparing themselves to others, as opposed to the standard approach to risk based on the absolute volatility of their wealth. If utility is a status function, specifically the value of wealth relative to one's peers, only deviations from the consensus are risky. Risk can be avoided in this context by everyone holding an identical market portfolio, making it similar to diversifiable risk in a world of absolute returns, avoidable and so unpriced. Maybe take a minute to unpack what this excerpt is talking about in your own words and maybe bring to bear some of the experience that you've had and deep thinking that you've had over the 10 years or eight years since writing it. Yeah. When I came out in my dissertation, which I published in, in 94, I discovered that there was low volatility actually had a slightly higher return. It was like 2% higher. I didn't have a good theory at the time. So I tried to document that mutual funds tended to disproportionately hold low volatility stocks. I documented that and that paper got in the Journal of Finance. But it wasn't an equilibrium theory because back when I did this, it didn't work to say the Freakonomics kind of behavioral finance stuff wasn't really popular. So you couldn't come out and just say, well, you have this ad hoc partial equilibrium explanation for this result. You can do that now. You can do that since like 2000, but you couldn't do that in the early 90s. And so it just didn't make any sense. And so I didn't come on to the, like, the relative volatility stuff until later. And then I figured out, oh, if it's relative vol, that everything makes sense. Because intuitively, we don't like risk. You have to pay me to take on idiosyncratic risk. But idiosyncratic risk is the same and, and unlikable whether you're a relative risk guy or an absolute risk guy because you deviate from the ab zero or you deviate from the mean. It's the same thing. The question was, well, clearly beta doesn't work within stock markets. It just gets more clear all the time. And it's never worked. It's not like it used to work and it went away. It's never worked. And then found all these other markets. There are like 20 of them. Financial markets where it doesn't work, where it should work. And then there are all these like things outside finance where it clearly doesn't make any sense that we're this way. And so that's what I was coming with with the relative risk. I came up with that Later, you know, in the like mid 2000s, because I wrote that one book, that was kind of like the theme of my book, Finding Alpha. But I wrote that mainly because I was in a, I was in this silly little uh, lawsuit. It was kind of like, I don't know, you ever watch Silicon Valley? Yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Okay. You know, the Hooli lawsuit, that was the kind of thing. I left the hedge fund. I was going to start my own thing. I thought I was, well, I can do this myself. And I had this long, short equity strategy based on low vol and it worked well and it generated a nice little like low one sharp and thought it'd be great. And my, my ex-employer found out about it and sued me. And he said, basically, he owned everything related to low volatility. And so while I was in probation for that two years, that's when I wrote the book because I couldn't work. I just got into it. It just seemed like, well, it's obvious that we're more relative than absolute risk minded. I mean, the theory I started with the marginal revolution of the 1870s, where you had like the first guys to say, you know, why is it that diamonds are worth more than water? Nobody else could explain it, right? And, and Marx had this value of use, and then you had the value of exchange, and so obviously the value of use of water is high, but the value of exchange of water is low. And they had this kind of like silly compartmentalization. But then guys like Jevons and I don't know who the other two guys were, came up like within five years, they all came up with this theory of utility, which is your first ice cream gives you one util, and then your second ice cream gives you a half a util. And if you have diminishing utility, that implies you're risk averse. So there's like an if and only if relationship between risk aversion and decreasing marginal utility mathematically. And like, you know, mathematically, the utility theory is great and economists love it. And it works really well at the micro level and explaining all sorts of things because, you know, like I said, it explains relative prices and stuff like that. But then, you know, in, in the 40s, they figured out, well, these guys, uh, I think it was Friedman actually, Milton Friedman and some other guy did a study of games right around the time they were doing all that game theory stuff and von Neumann, Morgenstern. And, and they said, well, Let's look at the risk premium. You know, let's just assume wealth is treated like ice cream or something and use that same kind of 
diminishing marginal utility framework? And if so, then, then you have risk aversion. And of course, uh, Markowitz worked under Friedman, so he picked up on that. Then we get the development of the risk premium because it all just comes out mathematically of that. And you know, that's why it was so beautiful. But the thing is, it never worked. And it has all these other absurd implications that, that don't work. But mathematically, it, it's nice because then it just makes so many things in you know, growth theory and macroeconomics from a math perspective work great. It just doesn't explain anything in real life. Right. It's great for modeling, though, because like, if you're a growth theorist, if you buy this like relative risk hypothesis, or if you think we're more relatively oriented, economists really can't say much about making the world better. Because, you know, in some sense, a good world is one where everyone has the same income, you know, at $1,000 rather than one where we have higher aggregate wealth. Yeah. The median is lower. Yeah. Obviously, that's, that's not good. But then that gets into like, well, how do you value equality versus liberty? Then those get into like questions that aren't mathematizable, and then economists become not relevant. And we wanted stuff that was modelable. And so, you know, no one wants to go that way. It just doesn't work at all. And so, uh, so here we are. Unfortunately, when I figured out the relative risk thing back, you know, in the mid 2000s, I wrote the book because you're not going to get rejected for writing a book. And Wiley wrote the book. But, you know, I, I did try to send it out to some places. And then they all said, well, obviously, that doesn't make any sense because, well, it's just too radical. And the big counterexample was the, the equity risk premium. Like, well, that's a pretty big data point that I couldn't explain. You know, and it kind of remains. But like I said, you know, that you can explain some of these things with like liquidity premiums. There's obviously a risk premium from going from cash to like one year worth of debt. But think about it. You can use T-bills as collateral. That's like money. But you can't use T-bonds as collateral as money, right? And the same thing's true for AAA to triple B. I mean, there's there's a risk premium. There's return premium going from AAA to triple B. But again, you can't really post triple B bonds as you can't use those to to collateralize all sorts of things, the way you can't AAA. So that's kind of a institutional liquidity thingy. You know, it's a big difference between going from like certainty to non-certainty. But after that, it doesn't extrapolate. And then the equity premium though, I think you know that's that's a real puzzle because the crazy thing about equities is most people think the equity risk premium is something like five, six percent, right? So how do you explain that? Weird thing is, overnight returns are like 100% of the equity risk premium. If you look at closed to open, last like 30 years, that's all the return in the stock market. It's not open to close. But open to close is two-thirds of the risk. So if you think you're getting paid for equities for taking risk, well, why aren't you getting two-thirds of returns in the day when you have two-thirds of the risk? Yeah, you've got a really good decomposition of the ERP in your missing risk premium book, if I recall. And once you back out all of these other explanatory variables, you're not left with much, if I recall. Your average investor does really poorly. I don't you ever seen those surveys of like the institutional, I don't know, there's some group, AMR or something. Um, the average investor makes like 5% less than the top line, even if he's an equity investor because of all the fees and bad timing they do. And your average retail investor is just bad timing and you know they pay a lot of costs. And of course, then there's taxes. And when you take all that out, your average widow and orphan is not making their equity risk premium. Institutions are, but uh, it's a weird thing. But those are the three anomalies. I mean, you got the AAA to triple B you know, kind of risk premium. You got the, the yield curve risk premium going from like cash to three years or so. And then you got the equity risk premium. And all those I think are kind of like the first two are liquidity, institutional collateralization issues. And then equity one, well, the equity one's weird. I don't quite know. Yeah. And also too, if you look at the equity risk premium more from a median perspective across all markets through history, then that premium is nowhere near as large as it is if you exclusively look at the US premium. Yeah. You have a lot of markets that have gone to zero, like in China and and Russia and Germany and Argentina and yeah, a bunch of them. I think Israel actually went to zero once. And it doesn't take many of those to <laughs> put a negative 100% uh, compound return uh, stream and yeah, kind of wipes everything out. Exactly. Exactly. So I want to go back to the mid 1990s. You're doing your PhD. You've identified this incredible anomaly. It is robust to everything you throw at it. It is eminently tradable, as you demonstrate a little later on, but you can't get this comprehensive thesis published. What was the climate back then that prevented you from being able to make progress academically with this concept of low volatility? Well, like I said, that was before behavioral finance and Freakonomics made it 
reasonable for somebody to come up with an ad hoc partial equilibrium solution. So, you know, a general equilibrium solution requires that like people can arbitrage whatever little effects. So today you can publish a paper and say, well, because people really like companies with these characteristics, because a lot of people like them, it pushes up the price. And so they have lower than average returns. You can say that like in uh, Frazzini and Peterson, right? So Frazzini and Peterson from AQR have this paper out where they say fund managers, they want more equity exposure because they want more of the risk premium. And so they all reach for the high beta stocks. And so that's why they have lower returns than expected. Fine. But then if you introduce a couple agents in that model who aren't constrained, they just get rid of that result entirely. So they have kind of an ad hoc constraint on the entire system that wouldn't pass muster in the 90s, but it works now. You're not assuming macro consistency now. Yeah, right, right. You know, you can have a little solution that says people over overpay for... And, and this is the way it was. Like Ed Miller came out in 77. He was the first one to point out that, hey, high volatility actually should have lower returns because if you have two stocks and they're both, let's say the mean value is 100, and one's got a really large standard deviation of, in terms of private valuations... Well, the long owners are in the top tail, right? They're the top 5% of people who like the stock. Well, that tail is further out, the higher the volatility. And he came out with this paper in 77. In the 70s, you know, economics was still not super mathematical and kind of get away with that. But it was becoming very uncool around that time and nobody really picked up on it. But then later on, in 2000s, it's referenced quite a bit because there are models that implicitly basically use that kind of idea. And actually, some explicitly point to the Ed Miller model, but it didn't sell at all. And no one ever hears about Ed Miller. And he's actually the first guy to say in an academic journal, I think it was in 2000 or 90, he came out and said, you should buy low of all stocks because high vol stocks are overpriced because of this reason. And he was the first guy to actually say that. So anyway, I had this partial equilibrium result, which is people liked it because it was low volatility stocks are sexy. You know, another thing I pointed out was if you look at the inflows to funds, they're convex. So if you're in the top decile, you get a ton of inflows and then it's very nonlinear. And then it's increasing as you go from, you know, the first, first percentile to the 90th percentile, but then it kicks up from 90 to hundred. So that's like a convex payoff of a call option, right? So what do you want to do? Well, if, if you just hew to the mean, you're never going to get up there. You have a higher expected inflow if you have a high volatility strategy. So that incentivizes the taking of bets that have lottery payoffs within mutual funds, because at least it provides the opportunity to get those kinds of flows. Yeah. So that didn't work. So so I remember I, I sent my low vol paper into Journal of Finance and and they're like, oh, this is interesting. You know, Why don't you revise and resubmit? And then I was doing that. I was also sending it to famous academics. And they were all like telling me it was actually, since then I was working at a bank, they were especially dismissive and uh, just saying, you know, I wouldn't recommend you do this. This is dumb. As a young guy, it's really discouraging. And so I kind of pivoted and I tried to say, well, instead of saying this is a low vol anomaly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to emphasize the fact that this really proves that the cap M doesn't work because you can look at low vol stocks, statistically prove that there's no way you can explain this within the cap M at all. And then when I sent that in, they said, no, no, okay, now you're going crazy. And so that killed my journal finance paper. So was the basic assertion that the security market line is flat? Or were you making the assertion that it was had a negative slope? It actually had a negative slope. It was so negative and the statistics were so powerful, you could reject you know, the hypothesis that P value of 0.0001, that it was positive. But I didn't have a good general theory for why, but I... I just said, well, this just clearly proves that this doesn't work. Because of the feedback I was getting about my crappy ad hoc theory, I thought, well, they'll like that, but they like that even less. But I didn't really care because, you know, I was private sector. I was actually quite happy to, to do this on my own. And I set up my own fund. I created a C-Corp and I pulled in some family's money and I thought I'd just seed it. And then I'd go around and sell it to like investors. And then I discovered it was just, a, it was a marketing nightmare because my idea was so simple that people would either say, well, if that works, why should I pay you for that? If I went to an institution, they're like, well, we're not going to let some kid come here with his own model because he's going to try to like own it. And then if they understood it, they're like, well, you told me everything I need to know. I don't have to pay you. The innovator's dilemma in the asset management space. I should have like sexed it up a little bit. I mean, 
I mean, the initial guys that got traction on this thing all came to it obliquely. So you had uh, uh, Harvey and Sadiq came out with this uh, co-skew model in 2000. And they found that low vol stocks had lower than average returns. But they emphasized because they have co-skewness with the market. Right. So there's a risk explanation finally. So now it's legitimate. Yeah. And that got published in the Journal of Finance. And Campbell Harvey's very well-respected academic but it was a very, you know, convoluted, bizarre explanation. It wasn't robust. You know, it's the same. If you torture the data long enough, it'll tell you what you want. Just like today, when you try to explain low vol with 27 factors, you can say, oh, low vol is easily explained by these five factors. Like, okay, five factors versus one. But anyway, so Harvey and Fick were like the first guys that get kind of an academic paper published. But then the big low vol academic paper to first get published was Ang, Hadrick, Zing, and Zhang in 2006. Idiosyncratic ball. Yeah. And they came at it with, they actually investigated first, not volatility. I think they were emphasizing some other wacky... Um, idiosyncratic volatility, right? Well, they used idiosyncratic volatility, but the first part was they were looking at the covariance of volatility innovations with returns. That was the main part of their paper. But then the latter half was all documenting, hey, volatility per se does horribly. You know, there's like high volatility stocks have the worst returns. And then after it was published, everyone forgot about the first half, which is what they thought was big uh, contribution to science. And they just said, oh, this is the first true reputable journal that's documented the low vol effect. Although you could see pieces of it in other papers, but that was the, the first one that was clear. But even that was, wasn't the main point when you had other papers like that. So, and it wasn't until these guys started these funds and the funds did well that everyone started to say, hey, low vol is like a real thing. It's got uh, actually low vol, you know, on a sharp ratio perspective is attractive. We don't know why. From the time I found it in, you know, 92, and by the time you could actually say that directly as you're in your abstract, that whole thing took the industry 16 years. So it wasn't me. It was everybody. It just wasn't in the Overton window of finance. Right, right. Yeah, that's <laughs> true. That's true. There, there are those things. What do you do? So betting against beta, obviously an enormously popular paper, that seems to be an acceptable interpretation, but it seems like the results are subsumed by low vol. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I don't think it matters, you know, whether you use idiosyncratic beta or vol so much. I mean, I think total volatility is probably the best if you're looking to explain returns, but if you're constructing your portfolio and you want to like have it hedged right, because the idiosyncratic uh, diversifies away, you might just use beta. Their paper, I think, is is silly because, like I said, it, all you take is one rational agent who's not constrained and the thing goes away. And also, their model predicts that it doesn't predict that you have a negative sloped uh, security market line where high beta has lower returns than average beta. It predicts a lower than lower than expected. So high beta stocks should still have higher than average returns. And the crazy thing about low vol is, Low vol stocks have a slightly higher than average return, 2%, whatever. It's the high vol stocks that have the crazy return. I mean, they, have, they have horrible returns. The top 20% of stocks in volatility over time just have abysmal. You want to avoid those like the plague because they're twofers in terms of badness. They have horrible returns and they have super high volatility. So betting against beta doesn't say that. And so it doesn't make any sense because all these people – all these, these fund managers are reaching for the high beta stocks, but they're too stupid to know that the high beta stocks actually have lower than average returns. And so the equity premium they're trying to grab for via this beta characteristic doesn't work. So it's the old like Keynesian problem of if you assume everyone's acting in a certain way where the implications of their actions kind of counter their beliefs, it just assumes that everyone's just really stupid. And for me, who was, was struggling with trying to make my model rational, I find it interesting that like this crazy irrational model could be out there. But, but, you know, they get a nice result. It's mathematically pretty. And then they get a single metric of they've got some high-low return metric that they think, you know, helps predict stuff. And I don't think it really does much of anything. But if you can crystallize your model down to like one little thing, one little equation, it definitely sells a lot better than a messy result that has more than one. So they, they get a lot of mileage out of that. But I mean, it, you know, it just, I think anybody who goes down that path is wasting time. Yeah, and the general thesis, right, is just avoid high, high risk stocks, right? High risk stocks are massively undercompensated in the cross section. And 
really, if you examine the excess return to low risk stocks, the statistical properties are marginal. The major effect is the extreme underperformance of, of high risk stocks, right? Yeah, on a return perspective, yeah. But you know, the, the cool thing is, I think in practice, you notice that brokerages never sell like a stock saying, listen, I'll give you the same return as the next guy, but it'll be like two thirds of volatility. I mean, they kind of do it now because of low volatility stocks. And, you know, I know PIM sells that and, it, and rationally people should buy that, but it's not sexy. A broker who goes to, you know, your average investor, they're going to say, listen, I can make you an extra five, 10% because if you buy the new Uber IPO or Tesla, it's going to, it's going to double. And I have this reason why nobody sells like the idea of, I'll give you the same return at lower risk, but you should, because, you know, that's why I think, you know, if you just focus on like these low vol funds, great, because you'll do like one or 2% better than average and you'll have two thirds of risk. That's awesome. And for most people for whom investing is not a day job, that's pretty good. And so just try to be humble and, and take that. That's pretty darn good. Yeah, absolutely. I was wondering whether or not you've given some thought to whether your relative utility model might help to explain some other widely documented anomalies. I'm thinking kind of momentum or trend following. It seems to me that relative utility might be linked to informational cascades or return chasing behaviors and that you can sort of quickly intuit how that might translate into these types of continuation effects. Have you given any thought to that? Yeah, it's really difficult to model, but I, but I think there is there's something there. Like obviously, you remember the internet bubble. In late 99, if you weren't into internet stocks, you were a loser. And there were a couple of really big smart guys who got kicked out of the market because they thought it was all bunk. What's the Keynes say about, you know, the, the market can be irrational longer than you can be liquid. You have to jump on. If everybody's jumping onto that asset class and you're not, and it goes up, it might not be around anymore. So, you know, and when everyone just started to jump into crypto in 2017, a lot of it was just people saying, hey, I don't want to miss out. And so you, you do see a lot of that, but it, it is hard to model mathematically because it's a, it's a dynamic game of, you get a lot of weird stuff going on. I wrote a paper actually on, on or I wrote a blog post on like Batesian mimicry and, and business cycles. You know, Batesian mimicry is like where you have the, the snake that looks like the poisonous snake, but he's not poisonous. And so what you have is in ecological systems, you have, there's, there's an equilibrium number of non poisonous snakes that look exactly like the poisonous ones. Because otherwise, as a snake, you can just, I can look like that guy, but I don't have to make the poison. So use those calories for other things. You know, they just find the qualitative result, but they don't model it because it's just too darn hard. And so qualitatively, I think it does help explain why we get into some of these, you know, excesses. It's beyond me to, to model, but I, I do think maybe someone smart would be able to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I've been wondering whether or not there are other anomalies or things characteristics of markets, inefficiencies, inconsistencies that you or that, you know, that practitioners in general are aware of intuitively, but that, again, just haven't, aren't yet ready for open discussion in academic circles. They aren't in, as we were saying, the Overton window for finance at the moment. Does, does this, anything else occur to you that's sort of in this same category that you've stumbled across? Well, big ones are things like options. Since I worked at Walleye for a couple of years, you know, that was after my lawsuit. And so I just got out of my lawsuit. No one would touch me because I had this weird, we settled. And so, you know, it wasn't like I had a free bill of health and no one wanted to hire me. And so I was a quant for and did high frequency strategies for an equity options market maker and learned a lot there about high frequency stuff and options. But the out of the money options, puts and calls just have horrible returns if you price them at the median. If you price them where retail option buyers are, they're, they're just insanely low. And of course, they have huge risk. And so that whole option market is just in terms of like, it's horrible for your average retail investor. I think that should get a lot more interest in terms of like, you're not helping people by, it kills me when the Nigerian brothers get on there on CNBC and promote this stuff because they're promoting, they're promoting, you know, all sorts of really costly strategies that have super negative returns. And, and they're using the imprimatur of, of CNBC to sell that garbage. They can be used, but, but in general, they're, they're horrible. I don't know if you remember like Miller Medigliani. I mean, that's like a foundational financial result. Miller Medigliani says, well, 
it doesn't matter if you leverage up the firm because you know the costs will increase, but debt is charged less than equity. But the equity charge will go up so much because of the volatility in terms of expected returns. Like, actually, no, there's no evidence for that foundational result either. I mean, a lot of people said that the foundations of finance are basically Miller Medigliani, you know, rational expectations and CAPM and Miller Medigliani doesn't work. The CAPM doesn't work. I believe in rational expectations in the sense of to a first approximation, it is hard to make money in markets. So I, I like that one. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, everything in finance, it doesn't work. It doesn't work on intraday returns. It doesn't work for real estate, emerging markets. It doesn't work over time. It doesn't work in currencies. It doesn't work Sports betting, you know, most of these things, it actually goes the wrong way. So it's just a, a nightmare of a predictor. And then outside of economics, I think is really kind of interesting is consider like we're, I don't know, seven, seven times wealthier than, than our great grandparents, probably. We're all insanely rich relative to kings of 200 years ago in terms of like the warmth I can get, you know, the indoor plumbing and all this stuff. And I get Google and, and but we whine all the time. Our life, we're not happier. We're not getting happier. That's the Easterland paradox documented this everywhere that obviously that makes a lot more sense if you look at it from a relative utility point of view. And so, you know, the only way we can get the crazy utility that generates that weird result is these uh, Kara hypothesis, constant absolute risk aversion. And it's this weird math function where I care as much about a 10% fluctuation wealth, whether I'm a billionaire or I have a thousand dollars. And I think on a practical level, that's only going to matter if I'm judging myself relatively. And so if that's the case, I should just like junk the mathematics of the Kara utility and just look at it and say, yo, you're a relative maximizer. And, and biologically, it makes a lot more sense because we have to be in evolutionarily stable strategies. And so we're all competing for mates and jobs and lakefront property. And there's only a f- certain amount of it, no matter how rich society is. And they found genetically that like only 40% of men like procreate over time. And then Whereas 80% of women do. So, so if you're the median male over a couple of generations, your genes are going to be dead. Great, Eric. So yeah, I wanted to just take a minute to take a detour from finance for a second. I know you're a libertarian. You're a deep thinker about the fundamental principles of, of politics and human rights. And I'm just wondering, given what are the potential policy implications of some of the things that you just talked about in terms of people's preferences in terms of relative versus absolute wealth and the Easterling paradox. From a policy standpoint, what are we doing wrong? What kind of changes can we make? Is there a solution to that? Or is this just a problem that we're going to have to live with? It's like a sad fact of humanity that basically, the nice thing about like, when I was a libertarian and believed in uh, absolute risk was like, a profit maximizing rational long term person was for all the libertarian policies that I like. Basically, growth, it's kind of neoliberalism. You know, you have growth is consistent with liberty and it's consistent with maximizing happiness. But it turns out that's not really the case. That And that's kind of scary because liberalism started on the idea of individual property rights. And basically that, you know, the king or the sovereign has has his authority from, from the individuals. So it all starts with the individual. And I think that generates all sorts of good things for flourishing societies relative to like free thought, gave us the enlightenment. I mean, unlike Steven Pinker thinks the enlightenment led to the industrial revolution. I like to think that individualism gave rise to the industrial revolution. It was property rights, full stop. It wasn't Bacon figuring out science. All the great early scientists were crazy uh, Bible thumpers, like, you know, Newton thought uh, he was into numerology and and all those guys uh, believed in six-day creation of earth and stuff. So property right. And that leads to free thought. It leads into great art. It leads into technical innovation. But unfortunately, you know, if, if we're just going to be grubby little like fighting over today, you know, see people aren't happy in the US and nobody looks and says, well, I'm poor, but I'm, I'm a lot wealthier than I would be if I lived in um, the Sudan. Well, no one, no one says that. And they don't because it's not hardwired into us. And so that's really kind of depressing. And I, I don't have a good uh, solution for it other than to try to convince people that if you try to enforce equality by taking away liberty, you'll have neither, as, as Milton Friedman said. But if you, if you focus on liberty, you'll get more equality, actually. And some people are going to be unequal. They're going to be below average. And it's hard to say, well, in the long run, it's going to be that way. That's just like a dystopian nightmare for many. I'll send you this. I don't know if you saw it already, but there's a really neat and short paper by Ole Peterson, and I forget who his co-author is, but they modeled the wealth distribution of a nation, of a obviously very simple nation, 
as a function of some sort of growth dynamic, but also assuming no skill. They varied two or three different variables. And then they had also a feedback mechanism where some of the aggregate wealth is fed back into the into the system, right, from the individual. And the conclusion was that assuming no difference in skill among the agents, that the system will trend to unlimited disequilibrium unless you feed some factor back into the system, right? There's some sort of redistribution mechanism. So you don't even need to have an expectation of a distribution of skill to expect an an intermediate to long-term outcome that results in an almost infinite Pareto distribution of wealth. What's the mechanism that's making the rich people get richer? Good luck compounds, right? So you've got- Why would it compound? You've already accumulated some wealth. Uh And by virtue of accumulating wealth, then you get access to greater opportunity and that greater opportunity provides for a higher probability of accumulating further wealth and that compounds. Yeah, yeah. But I'm not doing the paper justice. I'll kick it over to you and you can read it and and let me know your thoughts on it. But I thought it was an interesting, simple model. I'm a real pessimist in terms of like, I'm not an optimist like those people who think, oh, well, we're going to solve all our problems. And I just think humanity has always just been wicked and nasty and stupid. And the academics of the day always thought, oh, the guys in the past were all wrong, but we've, we've got to figure it out now. And, you know, if you read the past, I mean, Sam Harris sounds exactly like the humanist circa, you know, 1900 who thought, well, we're going to go back, we're going to get rid of all the stupid biases that cause us to be a suboptimal society, and we're going to fix everything. You know, and this was in 1900. And obviously, you know, they were way wrong. And we look back, and, and Sam Harris and those guys would say, well, that was dumb because he was a racist and whatever. But today they like, but now I've got it figured out. And it's like, uh, no, you don't. Yeah. And by virtue of knowing your biases, unfortunately, Kahneman and all of the experts are the first to admit that knowledge of your own biases does not help you to avoid them. Yeah, I actually read that it makes them worse, actually, because you can. Right. It's easier for you to rationalize them. Yeah, you can convince yourself that you're not being susceptible to them because you're aware of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're like, oh, I'm aware of them. So therefore, they're not a problem. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah that's where it just doesn't doesn't work at all. Like, yeah, so life is going to be the same. It's going to be always just, I just think like my grandpa, like in the crappy little house he lived in and the, the bad beer that he had to drink. And he wasn't less happy than me. And I think that's going to be the case. And we're going to always have problems and people are always going to be stupid and whatever. Yeah, agreed. All right, let's loop back to the main thematic thread of the discussion. I'm curious, if you were to write a book today, what would it be about? Would you cover some of the same themes or, or have you stumbled into new ideas that you're curious to explore and, and share? Well, professionally, I'm working on stuff they can't talk about, unfortunately. I've really taken a direction. I became a Christian uh, a couple, like three years ago. And so that's a big thing for me. And I, I really find that interesting. I came about it through actually intelligent design. So I came about it through my head. I didn't have a crisis. I just think it logically makes a lot of sense. But that's that's just kind of like outside. But then like in finance, finance, everybody wants... Frazini and Peterson thing. It's sort of like that Kruger economist. He died recently. You know, Cardin Kruger came out with this test and they had this one experiment with one equation that proved that raising the minimum wage is a good thing. And then, you know, Levitt had this one test that showed that abortion lowers crime. Uh, and this guy, Esimoglu, everyone likes these things. Those are really powerful in terms of using academics to prove some point. None of them work though, but that's what people want. And so, my explanation for the persistence of the low vol effect, relative risk-oriented, and then people like low vol for a bunch of reasons. Basically, there's like six of them. Uh, that, that article I did with uh, Blitz and uh, Van Vliet from Robico kind of goes over them. There's, you know, there's, there's like seven reasons to like low vol just on its own. And the fact that you can't arbitrage it because, you know, you do have the low vol is not going to be linear to the S&P 500. You have some residual risk error. That gets rid of it. But that's not pretty at all. I don't think anyone would find that interesting. So, you know, in the finance stuff, I just think I don't really get jazzed about anything that I think is really cool because all I have are these stupid null results like, you know, in risk management. Risk management, I started my career doing value risk and capital allocations and default models. And, you know, optimal risk management is good, but it, it's not an offensive weapon. It's defensive and it's a lot of common sense, but mainly it's just a bunch of 
kind of like sophisticated apologetics for whatever your company's strategy is. And it's not sexy and it doesn't sell. It's kind of like the accounting department. Yeah. So the things that sell are like, hey, I've got this great new tool and it's going to help you like do great things. And so the things that I've learned that are really profound are actually kind of like just kind of useful, but it's not going to promise to make you rich. You know, just like telling an investor, hey, you can make 2% more with your money with two thirds of risk. Well, most people find that not very appealing. How much do you squat? Yeah, I work out a lot. I do a lot of jujitsu now. It's a great workout. And I work out with weights a lot, but I, I have to control my movements because I had a, a microdisectomy on my back and I'm 53. So I try not to, I won't hit my maxes ever again, but uh, I do a lot of the machines. That's how you stay from getting hurt. Right. Yeah. So I don't do like straight on benches anymore. When I do the squats are usually in these wacky, they got crazy machines now. I'm still pretty strong. I, my daughter's 12, so I figure I got to be pretty uh, tough for the next 15 years until she gets married. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I got to be able to intimidate all of her quarters, you know, her dates for the next 15 years. So that's my goal. That's good motivation. Yes. I like that. Okay, well, let's wrap it up. I'm just wondering whether or not, did I miss asking about anything that you'd hope to have a chance to talk about? Just the one thing is that, uh, you know, whether or not uh, low vol is explained by a multiplicity of factors, I would say no, just because... If I have a model that has one factor that explains stuff as well as a model that explains with five factors, I would say the model with one factor is a better explanation. When I was at Pine River, we had the equity risk model and it's, they now have like, I don't know, 15 or 20 factors they look at. It's ridiculous. And you can explain everything with them, but you explain everything and nothing. And, and uh, simpler is always better. When I was at, uh, at Moody's and tried to model default risk, it was much better to find one metric of leverage than to use five metrics, take the average, and uh, all sorts of things that went into the model that way. And the same thing's true for a stock. I think everyone thinks, oh, well, five things, and I average them, it'll be better. Like, now it's better to have some faith in one thing and then stick with it. But it takes a lot of faith because, you know, if you find something that works, you're going to get a better sharp by like 02 something. And, and you're not going to see evidence of that for 10 years. So, but that's the riskiness of investing. But I think as, as a general prejudice, I would go in with, if you think you can get the same result with, with, with fewer factors, choose that. This is often a really confusing subject for, even among practitioners, it's confusing, right? So for example, imagine you've got, you're a value manager and you've got a variety of different ways that you can measure value. You're a systematic value manager, right? So you're running screens. So you do a horse race and you see that over the horizon that you're able to measure that ranking on price to earnings outperforms ranking on price to cash flow. And the sharp ratio is 0.52 versus 0.48. And you know that the standard error of the sharp ratio is somewhere on the order of 0.15. So they're statistically indistinguishable. What's the right move there? Is it to form a portfolio by sorting on on PE and then form a different portfolio by sorting on price to cash flow and then hold all the stocks that rank highly in by PE and hold all the stocks that rank highly by price to cash flow and just divide it up like that? Because sometimes PE outperforms for a decade at a time and then sometimes price cash flow outperforms a decade at a time. And the objective ends up to kind of being, well, let's just avoid being wrong, right? Avoid over-specifying and being wrong, right? But that's a different question from whether or not you should use a combination of factors to rank, right? So you've got price to cash flow and PE and price to book and enterprise value, but all this kind of stuff. And you're just going to take, you're going to sort on all of those five factors. And then you're going to take the stocks with the highest sum of the ranks across all those five factors. Right. Well, that ends up being really fragile, whereas the first sort of ensembling approach ends up just really, you're just trying to minimize the potential for bad luck. How do you think about that? Yeah, it's tricky because when you have a lot of factors, you have, I don't know how many value metrics you have, probably at least a dozen reputable ones. You can find a subset of those that outperform everything. It's really easy to overfit that and convince yourself that you didn't overfit it. I see lots of people do this stupid thing where they go, well, first we test and then then we look at it in sample and then we do it out of sample. And we do that again and again until we get this great result. It's like, well, if you do it iteratively, there's nothing is out of sample. And so, you know, if you're sitting there and your, your job as a quant is to find stuff, nothing is out of sample, especially in equities where 
The relevant returns are monthly. They're just not accruing quickly enough. You can't test things out of sample. So yeah, you need some humility. And and I think there's probably a good paper in there where you could show that like if you try to if you tried like an approach to look at, you know, whatever, five, five metrics for something, it's much better to like glom on to one metric. And that's where it takes a lot of common sense. Like when I was at Moody's and we found out that you know, the best metric of earnings for private firms was actually net income. And you might think, well, shouldn't use EBIT, EBITDA, and there are all sorts of reasons why, but those are easy to game kind of. And so, and it was better to just use a simple net income and then just ignore all those other ones. And then, um, so, you know, you look at theory and, you know, make sure like the denominator can't go, you know, below zero and try to think, well, what one's easier to game? So you kind of like you use your institutional knowledge of like how these factors are constructed. I don't know. I mean, I chatted with value managers who have made the case that net income is easy to game or it really ends up just being a theology more than a, a science in the end. Right. And um, I think it was Menken who said um, that the key is to choose good prejudices. <laughs> I like that. I like that. So, uh, All right, great. Well, I think we hit everything then. This has been really neat. I've been looking forward to this in one form or another for many years. So really appreciate you offering your time to chat today. Covered a lot of topics. And I think this is going to be a really popular episode with listeners. So so thanks again. All right. Well, you'll be in touch. I'll talk to you some other time. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode in the show notes at investresolve.com forward slash blog. You can also learn more about Resolve's approach to investing by going to our website and research blog at investresolve.com, where you will find over 200 articles that cover a wide array of important topics in the area of investing. We also encourage you to engage with the whole team on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve and hitting the follow button. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email, social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that our podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.